This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. New Zealand is one of the 57 founding members of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which was set up in Beijing in 2016 to help finance infrastructure projects, particularly those with a sustainability focus, and now has a capitalisation of more than 100 billion US dollars. The bank's CFO is a New Zealander named Andrew Cross, and he joins me now. Hi, Andrew. Morning, Will. Thanks very much for bringing me in. It's a privilege. It's great to have you here and and in the country. So first up, tell me a little bit about what A-I-I-B, sorry, does. No, that's fine. Sometimes people call it A-double-I-B. Oh, that that would help. Yeah. (laughs) So there's basically a $5 trillion infrastructure gap in Asia. And so the bank was set up, as you said, seven years ago with New Zealand as a founding member to tackle that gap. We have $100 billion, as you said, of equity, basically, from those shareholders. The 57 has now grown to 109. And it's really about how do you invest in uh, infrastructure in the region because it makes a positive and long-lasting impact on people's lives. So that's the raison d'etre. New Zealand's very much involved because it's clearly got a vested interest in the region. Um, With a new international organisation like uh, AIIB, by being early and literally one of the earliest, it had the opportunity which it utilised to set the standards, to define the rules, to participate in the governance. And I must say, you, uh, New Zealand Treasury, which is the representative, has been actively engaged um, over the last seven years. This is a crucial moment for New Zealand because just recently, the constituency or the group of countries that they sit in with Australia, Singapore, Vietnam, Cook Islands, New Zealand next year becomes the director of that group. So one of 12 out of the 109. So it's a real opportunity, a powerful opportunity for New Zealand to use its voice around what matters to it, what matters to that constituency, and what matters to its approach to the Pacific. Mm. So obviously, I mean, I won't ask you to talk to New Zealand's um, approach to this, because it's not your role, but what are the interests that are served, uh, considering perhaps New Zealand isn't always the recipient of this kind of funding? Yeah, sure. So if you think about uh, infrastructure, it's a long-lasting asset. I mean, we're typically investing in an asset um, you would expect to last 25, 30 years. In this day and age, a lot of the time you're extending that asset to be even longer. So hugely impactful. Um, infrastructure generates prosperity, generates wealth. Um, it has a positive impact on economy and people. And so if you think about New Zealand's engagement with the Pacific, New Zealand's engagement with Asia, a positive growth story is positive for the, for the country. Um, You're absolutely right. Uh, New Zealand Treasury is the best place to actually talk about uh, why they're invested um, and why they participate in the institution. My guess is that because of the long-lasting nature of the investment, because of its impact on indigenous people, on biodiversity, these have always been really clear goals for New Zealand and the other 108 uh, shareholders. Mm. So... What brings you to New Zealand at the moment? We're actually obviously between governments. Um, who, are you, who are you meeting? Well, uh, selfishly, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. So, so we've had um, meetings down in Wellington yesterday with um, New Zealand Treasury, with um, the Reserve Bank, um, with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, with a number of roundtables, think tanks um, and groups. Because it's really important for us to be engaging um, with our shareholder 
and also to create the opportunity where they see fit for us to engage with civil society, NGOs, um, and essentially taxpayers. We're a taxpayer-funded organization. Um, taxpayer money is rare treasure, is how I think about it. So we're the guardians of 100 billion US dollars, which includes a contribution from New Zealand. So we have to turn up rightly every day um, and talk about what's the public good that we're trying to do. And the public good is around um, prosperous, sensible infrastructure in the Pacific and in Asia. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, a, there's infrastructure deficit everywhere, including in New Zealand, and, and there's a lot of projects on the map now, offshore wind here, lots of energy, renewable energy that needs to be created as well. Um, it, does AIIB see a role for itself here in New Zealand? Potentially, it's really up to uh, the shareholders. So uh, the one right restriction we have is we invest in countries where the country is a shareholder. So that's 109 countries, which includes New Zealand. The assets, um, the name gives it away, right? We're 100% um, focused on infrastructure. We had a slightly different contribution to countries during COVID um, in that we helped a lot of countries through the very, very difficult COVID-19 pandemic years. So really it's up to the private sector in New Zealand and the public sector to decide how best they think um, they would like to utilise the shareholding and the resources that the bank can bring. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what are the sort of priorities for the bank in terms of its, its funding more generally? I know that um, you know, climate change and sustainability is a, is a huge piece on the agenda. Yeah, I mean there's, there's a couple of catchphrases which, uh, which I think frame the organisation really well. Um, we started wanting to be lean, clean, and green, right? Um, and those three terms are fairly easy to understand and to um, think about what the implications are. For infrastructure, we have a 10-year strategy agreed with the board from 2020 to 2030, which is really about investing for tomorrow. So green infrastructure is really important to us. Technology-enabled infrastructure is really important to us. Regional connectivity, if you think about much of the challenges of um, small islands around the Pacific, but all, also the trade connections between many of the countries. And then lastly, but also most importantly, is how do you um, enable private sector funds to come into the infrastructure space? Because, as I said at the beginning, it's a $5 trillion gap. The bank has $100 billion. We can't do it alone. And so it's also our role to try and create opportunities incentives, the right environment for the private sector where there's enormous pools of capital to come in in an appropriate risk way to get invested in infrastructure. Mm. Okay. In terms of the influence of the bank, um, you know, it was said that it was perhaps a a reaction when it was set up to those more sort of Western institutions, um, the IMF and World Bank and others. I mean, do you feel that's um, a fair way of looking at it? Well, I think... uh, I think you always want to look at actions, right? So judge the institution. Um, We have 109 shareholders. That's across uh, the complete spectrum of developed and developing countries. Uh, Europe is a very large uh, constituency. Most of the G7, G10, G20 are are participants in the bank. So 57 has grown to 109 shareholders. So it shows you that countries and shareholders really see the, the power of investing in infrastructure, how it changes people's lives. Um, also, with $100 billion, um, the bank's got a clear focus on the region, clear focus on the, on the asset. And uh, I think countries got involved because they want to um, apply best standards. I mean, best practice is sometimes a, a loosely used frame. 
um, of determining how you put money to work. But we are um, the largest co-financier with the World Bank, the largest co-financier with the Asian Development Bank, two also important institutions in the region. So you can see standards, shareholding. We've done something like 234 projects in seven years, putting $45 billion to work. That really shows what an institution like us can do, which is a combination of, to your question, Will, developed countries and developing countries. Mm. China has a 27% uh, share, around uh, about? About 26%. 26%. Um, so there was some criticism, uh, particularly recently, that uh, it was having an outsized influence on through, through the bank. Um, what's your response to that? Oh, I mean, I, I work for 109 countries. Mm. Um, China is one of them. Uh, New Zealand is one of them. They all joined, coming back to your original question, for specific reasons. Those reasons and those policies can be different between each country. Of course, each of the shareholders um, wants to impact and positively influence the institution. Um, but it's an institution built on consensus. Um, it's an institution, if you look at the voting rights, um, that are carefully balanced. And so the institution can actually only move forward based on consensus, based on broad agreement. So one group, one shareholder, one constituency would find it very, very difficult to drive the institution forward. It has to be a collective exercise. And if you think about that, then collectively you're working for a common good. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that New Zealand's going to be the director of its particular regional group. What does that mean in practice? Um, it's a hugely important role because you take those 109 countries and they're essentially parceled into 12 constituencies. So New Zealand becomes the lead director for uh, a number of countries. So within that constituency, there are countries like Australia, countries like Vietnam, countries like the Cook Islands, uh, countries like Singapore. So it acts as a coordinating voice for all of, the, all of those countries. Um, but it also acts as uh, an opportunity for its own voice around, if you think about Inertia Aroa, the, the, the issues that are really important to New Zealand around the Pacific, around um, indigenous people, around sustainable investment for the long term. This is a vital and really important role for New Zealand Treasury in a global audience to really uh, have a, a significant impact on um, people, arguments, intellect, how you're thinking about these things, whilst rightly and responsibly representing the other countries that are in its constituency. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Guy Phillips and Stefan Merton have channeled their military career expertise into a new software offering that helps track freight shipments under the name Bolster. They join me now from our Wellington studio. Hi, guys. Hey, Will. Hey. So tell me a little bit about how your how your careers started or sort of transitioned from the military into what you're doing now? So I, my career was spent mostly in, in modeling complex systems. That's kind of what, I'm, what my training was in. Um, I started in ecological systems, forest fire burn patterns, um, fish, uh, you know, plants, how, how forests grow. Worked in Alaska on a, on a timber crew for, a, for some time. Um, after 9-11, I, I joined the army and and spent about uh, about ten years uh, doing national security work. Um, as part of that, my 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 job was to again model complex systems like I'd done with ecology, but in this case, it was it was modeling complex kind of terrorist systems, insurgent systems, um, systems of of people and things that didn't wanna didn't wanna be found and didn't wanna be tracked. Um, so after doing that for for some time, um, including a couple of tours of duty uh, overseas in Iraq. 
Um, I eventually came to New Zealand to, to support uh, the New Zealand government. Uh, did that for, for some time, um, kind of along the same lines. And then, um, yeah, after doing that for, for a little while, I, I, was, I was keen to, to move out of that national security space into something where I could maybe get a little bit more sunshine, uh, <laughs> spend a little bit time, a little bit more time outside, work from home, work remotely. And so got into technology, um, so worked for Amazon Web Services here in, in Wellington. Um, that was another example of kind of modeling complex systems. Again, those cloud um, infrastructure systems. I uh, worked with a lot of the startups in New Zealand that were, were running AWS. Um, and then eventually reconnected with my very good, very old friend Guy here uh, to figure out how we could kind of blend together some of that, that national security experience and analytics experience, modeling complex system experience for something that could really help New Zealand, uh, where we've both kind of set up shop and, and started families. Um, and yeah, really kind of contributed in a different way. What about you? Yep, yep. So similar to Stefan, uh, kind of the British version, I suppose. I was in the British Army. I was an uh, um, intelligence operator there doing lots of analysis, um, worked in a, in a small reconnaissance team. So I was quite close to and quite frustrated by the disparate data problem. And uh, sadly, at times, you know, it's quite severe consequences and, and what that can lead to. Um, I, le I left the military um, after um, yet some, some uh, operations in Afghanistan and, and, and many um, supports to operations um, from back in the UK. And I went to work for a company that was providing consultancy and training services to uh, Palantir Technologies. So I, I worked with those, th those folks for a number of years, which was great exposure. Um, and I provide sort of domain expertise in, in, in the defense space for that company. So I was exposed to lots of different organizations doing really critical work that all had the same disparate data problem. And over kind of the next sort of 10 years, I was able to develop um, an event-centric analytical methodology um, that I could use sort of with, on pen and paper, various IT systems. And I was able to test that in a number of environments, um, law enforcement, cybersecurity, um, and it kept on having good results. And luckily, as Stefan says, we reconnected and he was able to wrap some technology around, around that methodology. And that's when Bolster, Bolster got formed, really. Yeah, and, and and to just like jump on the back of that, like Guy and I really wanted to do something, uh, apply this methodology and our experience in data to something that New Zealand could lead. Like New Zealand's at the end of some very long supply chains down here. Um, and if there's one thing that we should be really good at, it's reaching global markets with our goods uh, and, and connecting to, to global markets so our, the consumers living in New Zealand can kind of can benefit from that. So that was the thing that we thought that if, if there's one thing for which there is data and for which New Zealand needs a, a robust solution, it, it's it's connecting those supply chains. Yeah, and for which there's demand. Obviously, is, is, has to come into the equation um, in terms of a, a, a business model, right? Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it, it turns out that there there is great demand for better visibility over over kind of export operations um, and. There's actually there's there's quite a lot of data to work with um, that's that's currently not being leveraged to do anything really constructive or, or that powerful, um, and so as we were doing our product discovery over the first kind of twelve months of our, our startup, we spoke with hundreds of different exporter importers, port leaders, freight managers, the like, um, and and the problem of just not being able to answer the question of where's my stuff. Like I have, I have a thousand containers on the water at any given time. Where are they? That 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 couldn't be answered was it was a real red flag to us that there's some pain here that that needs to be solved. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so to put a, a real point on it, like so in in New Zealand, 
because of our, our scale, um, almost every exporter uh, uses multiple shipping lines to either import or export their goods to the, to the global market. Um, it, and, and it kind of harkens back to the days in the military. So back back in the bad old days in, in government, they called it uh, uh, swivel chair integration. So you'd have four different screens. And the way you integrated was you'd have a website kind of open on each one and copy and paste, copy and paste, copy and paste. And it became this really repetitive, high friction task of trying to integrate stuff from different screens kind of in your head. So um, amongst the biggest things that we've done with Ansco through Bolster is just rather than having to kind of open up 10 different tabs of uh, Pacific, uh, Pacific Lines and Maersk and Hamburg Suit and all the different shipping lines that service New Zealand, we bring it into one place that's updated automatically. So a single sheet of uh, pane of glass with all of your, your shipments. And so you, it's, it's just much easier to keep that context. Um, so I think that was the biggest win at Ansco was just bringing everything into one place for everyone in the enterprise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so do you have other customers, commercial customers on the go or where are you at in terms of your product development and, and bringing to market? Yeah, yeah, we've got a number of other customers on the go. We've de deliberately kept it small uh, since raising our pre-seed round because um, we've really not coming from, from from the industry. We've really needed to kind of learn from from our early adopter customers, um, which 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 we're doing so really well. And we've we're, we're starting to work with um, customers in consumer electronics, consumer packaged goods. So we're expanding out of the the the, the agri um, sector uh, as well, which is awesome. Yep, yeah, and and specifically, like in, until now, we've had really, really good luck with exporters of primary goods. So like meat, vegetables, um, well, yeah, meat, vegetables, hops, you know, diff different types of primary goods, plants, agricultural export. Perishables. Um, perishables, yeah. right. Um, one of the things that we're really interested in from here, I think, is working with more importers um, to, to characterize how that system works. Like we kind of in one way of thinking about what we do as Bolster is we build a model of a supply chain. And the more data that we get from all of our customers, the more accurate and sophisticated our, our kind of machine learning model is of the system. Um, so in, in the future, bringing on more data from, from importers will help us round out kind of uh, how effective our model is for New Zealand. So uh, to your point of what's next, I'm really interested and excited about finding uh, the right importers in New Zealand that, that can drive value from the model we're building. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Would that necessarily be large importers or what, what, what kind of importers are you looking for? Um, so we scale all the way up to massive, like, you know, 2000 containers a week going out. Um, but because we're a SaaS platform and um, the way we've built it, it can scale right down to some of our customers have, you know, a couple of containers a week. Um, and that's, that's quite important to us. Like, Along the lines of we want to level the playing field for New Zealand to compete more effectively globally, we also want to make sure that this isn't a, we're not building a tool that's only available to the huge mega exporters and importers in New Zealand or the huge freight forwarders. Like we want it to be suitable for your mom and pop operations and, and your family owned businesses as well. So yeah, it all, kind of all the way up to the very, very big exporters, all the way down to um, pretty small scale. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. It sounds like the model and the, the, the thinking behind this, you know, could have a lot of different applications, not just in freight or, you know, it's a systems thinking thing, isn't it? Yes. So 
is that also in the long-term plan to perhaps license that that thinking out? Yes, yeah, we, we had conversations early on when, when yeah, we were doing our product discovery where there was, you know, the, the potential for white labeling bolster solution. Um, and that's definitely something that we'll consider once we're a bit more mature um, and, and once we've proved out in different different industries. Um, I think it's it, something close to our hearts too is, is kind of going back to that defense and, and national security space and seeing if, if Bolsa's platform can be used for good there. Um, so that's something that we're really keen to keep an eye on and, and, and revisit down track. Okay. So one of the things that's, that's come up recently like, is um, you know, more and more businesses, exporters from New Zealand are, are feeling pressure, especially from the EU, to model and measure their scope three emissions. So um, that's, that's a great example of what you mentioned, where we have this model. Um, you, know, you can use it for any number of arbitrary things to include optimizing your freight transit times or, or whatever. But um, another, another way to use that is to, to measure and quantify those scope three. So that's something that like along, we're, we're also looking for customers that are interested in that and something that we've seen a lot of pickup on, especially in New Zealand in the last kind of 60 days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Okay, great. Well, thanks for joining me, guys. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. It's time for this week's Economy Matters with Christoph Schumacher. So, Christoph, the economy's heading in the right direction. Do we thank Labour for that? Um, that is a very good and interesting question, as I as pointed out. Um, the timing of the election almost seems cruel uh, because, yes, we have seen, first of all, a, a drop in our account deficit. That's good. Followed by economic growth that was about twice what was expected, sort of at 0.9%. Um, we've seen record highs in immigration. That's always good for our economy. Um, it, New people arriving in the country do spend money, and that's a good thing. And we've seen inflation to fall. So interesting question. What causes an economy to sort of be pushed through the life cycle from um, being in a growth phase to contracting and and, and recovering? Um, Questions. Is it labor's fiscal policy and spending? Or um, could it be more the reserves bank type monetary policy? And what weight do you put on both those? Um, Interesting. And there is debate among economists. Um, The monetarists strongly believe that you need to control money, uh, the supply of money, and let the economy and market forces sort things out. Um, That means you do need to control the OCR. You you need to make sure you keep inflation in check and then the rest will fall in in place. In in sharp contrast to it uh, are people who follow the ideas of Minyard Keynes, uh, one of the famous economists who who had proposed uh, during the Great Depression that no, it's government who needs to spend money, who needs to pump money into uh, the economy put more money into people's pocket and they'll go out and spend more, companies will produce more, unemployment will go down and then sort the rest out out later. So there is no clear evidence. It's, it's unfortunately not a situation where we can clearly check and say, yeah, one is right, the other is, is wrong. Um, it really bel- is a, depends on what your view on how the economy works and, and what impact is, is greater. 
If we look at both sides then, what's happened in the past few years, the Reserve Bank started hiking later than they would have liked. And if we look at the government, they pumped money in directly during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, it looks, in my opinion anyway, that uh, pumping money into the economy initially to help the economy was the right thing to do, but um, it might have just gone a, a bit too far. And that's one of the issues we see uh, with, with uh, government spending, that Keynes' ideas have often been used to justify um, debt creation. Um, it has almost brought the economy to its knees during the global financial crisis when we saw how much debt is actually piled up. Uh, when Greece nearly uh, defaulted, it was exactly that kind of thinking, let's keep spending, let's keep spending. And, and in my views, it was not until um, the Reserve Bank actually started to raise the OCR um, that the economy got a chance to, to cool down. You also need to see um, the context. Uh, what happened in New Zealand was an overheating economy because um, supply couldn't keep up with demand. And I think that was the problem. The borders were still closed. We simply weren't getting enough products into the country. We weren't producing enough. And that created an overheating economy. It was not until money became so expensive that people actually stopped spending and that gave our economy a chance to, to recover and adjust to a level um, where output actually matched demand. So in, in my view, um, it was uh, monetary policy that should deserve the credit uh, for the current rise and not necessarily um, the government spending. Mm. For now, it looks as though the OCR has peaked? It, it looks like it because um, it would be harsh uh, for the Reserve Bank uh, to still push up the OCR when we actually see the inflation falling and the economy picking up again. Because there's always this huge social aspect to an increase in the OCR. People with mortgages, um, they struggle uh, with, with high uh, interest rates and it, it creates um, social trouble as well. So um, I believe we, uh, for now, the OCR will stay uh, where it is. What do you make of commentators who say they might hike in November or February? Well, I can't see in, 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 into the future how the economy will develop. But for now, I cannot see a reason why the OCR should go up any further. Let's remember that the Reserve Bank always had sort of an upper limit, which they have now reached. Um, so why would you want to interfere it was an economy that is in recovery uh, mode and just about to pick up. Mm. And the economy is expanding uh, more than economists had thought. What's your predictions of where that's going to head? Um, I hope we are hitting it as some steady growth at possibly the, the, the 1% margin. I mean, it looks all a bit better than we initially thought for the first half of the year that recession wasn't a recession because... We weren't negative in, in, in Q1. Q2 was far more optimistic. If we can sort of stabilize at that level and the net immigration numbers should suggest we, we can because the economy does get a boost, um, then we should be able to maintain similar levels, hopefully, uh, for the next quarter, quarter and for the rest of the year as well. 
And you've also mentioned in your article if the election was six months later, Labour may have been given more credit? Uh, possibly, yes, because that was a hot topic as part of the election campaigns. And yes, people are more forgiving once things are a bit better. <laughs> uh, when times are tough, um, people are more critical. So yes, possibly if the election had been six months later, um, people would have looked back and thought, ah, the last few months haven't been actually though bad economically. And yes, possibly given the, uh, the current government a bit more credit. And what kind of economy is national inheriting? Um, they should be actually pleased with, with what they inherit. It's always easier to work in an economy that is on the rise, that has just come out of a bit of a hole. Um, it's always better that our inflation is now hitting in the right direction. We're still not where we want to be, definitely not. Uh, remember, our target sits sort of around the 2 to 3%. So there is still work to be done, but it's hey, always better to inherit an economy that just has shown some growth and a reduction in our account deficit than the other way around. Absolutely. Christoph Schumacher, thanks for your time. You're welcome. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. A recent employment law case has some interesting discussion within it about an employer's obligations when dealing with the ongoing mental health and behavioural issues posed by an employee. Joining me to talk through the case is Rachel Judge, Senior Associate at Simpson Grierson. Rachel, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you for having me. Now, tell us in a nutshell, these are really long, complex cases, but they're interrelated. What happened here, just top line? So essentially it involved an employee who disclosed mental health issues to her employer and there were behavioural issues going on at the same time. The employer proceeded with sort of normal disciplinary processes to address those behavioural issues and that is where in a series of cases they first got unstuck by doing that but then in the second case more recently that came along they were found to have acted reasonably. The employer was found to have they were. Yes. So what kind of things was the employee doing that was sort of um, obviously not always attributable to the mental health issue? So in, in the second case that came along, the issue had been they came across social media posts that the employee right. had posted about some colleagues, which they considered were potentially inappropriate. That's something we are seeing more and more of in these cases. Right. And as a result of that, they decided to invite her to a disciplinary meeting. Her father then contacted them and raised concerns about her mental health, said she'd suffered some serious issues. So they then agreed to put the process on hold until they received more medical information. The employee actually challenged the fact that they had raised the issues at all with her, given the mental health concerns, which was the first part of the decision. And helpfully, the court said employees have their own obligations in terms of being constructive and open with their employers. And the employer wasn't on sufficient notice of the mental health concerns that, that it couldn't have sent her the disciplinary invite letter at that stage. 
So the employer in that case was found to have acted reasonably by inviting her to a meeting but then pausing the process to, to await further medical information from her. Right. Gosh, this is really a vexed issue, isn't it? So this woman posts on social media and gets called into a disciplinary meeting and the father rings up and says, hold on, she's got an issue. But she mm. didn't like that issue being raised. So was she happy to face disciplinary action? No, sorry, she she didn't like the fact that they had invited her to a disciplinary meeting at oh, all I and see. said they should never have done that because she had these mental health issues. So it came down to how much did the employer reasonably know about those issues at the point in which it sent the letter. And the court said they didn't know enough to mean that they, they acted unreasonably by sending her a letter to invite her to a meeting was essentially what it was. But, okay, I mean, can you ever send a disciplinary meeting to someone who says they've got mental health issues? Well, that's that's what does become a really vexed issue because the first case involving these two parties, it's been an ongoing saga, and the first case involved the employer kind of going ahead with disciplinary processes when it had been on express notice as to her, the employee suffering from ADD and anxiety. And the court in that case essentially found that the mental health and health and safety concerns trumped the employer's right to otherwise run through a disciplinary process. So essentially it found when you're balancing these two considerations, mental health and health and safety has to come First, so you can't just go ahead with a, a disciplinary or other process if there's that risk of harm to the employee. So what on earth uh, is an employer supposed to do if someone has misbehaved but has mental health problems? That's the really tricky issue that our employer clients right. are grappling with at the moment. And essentially, if there are those mental health issues, you need to be seeking medical advice. You need to be considering what that medical advice says and if it says you can't proceed with your process then really you shouldn't be proceeding and you should be treating it as a medical issue which could could eventually amount to you know termination for medical incapacity if someone's not able to participate in your internal employment process. Do you think, has there been any proof given in either of these cases that someone with mental health issues cannot help themselves but posting on social media? That's not something that has has come up in these cases in the sense that they didn't actually get into the substantive issues themselves right. in terms of her behaviour. It was all about the process and whether it was fair to even initiate a disciplinary process before getting to what what impact her mental health issues had in terms of her culpability, that wow. that was something that they haven't actually got to at this stage. <laughs> so you said the first case found that the employer hadn't acted properly? That's right. So the first case found they sort of ploughed on with their disciplinary process in circumstances where they should have halted and sought medical advice. Right. And the second one was that... They had. That's right. So by the second case, they had learnt their lesson. And once they were alerted to these ongoing mental health issues and medical issues, they then halted their process and awaited further medical information before 
before proposing to continue with that process. But why did the second case come up? I mean, they were judged against in the first one. That should have been sort of the end of it. Why did it come up again? Well, they they did take a different approach in the second case. So I think they had... I feel the case shows that they had sort of learnt their lesson from the first case, but the employee took issue with slightly different things that they had done in the sense that they had initially invited her to a disciplinary meeting at all. And so even though they had paused their process and taken into account the medical information, she claimed that the fact they had even sent her a letter was inappropriate. And that's where the court found, no, that that was reasonable in the circumstances to have sent her an invitation letter, essentially. So this employee remains on the employer's books? She does. Still getting paid. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Just waiting for the next case to crop up. It, It seems to be the case. So what happened is she obviously lost in her second case in the employment court. She then tried to appeal that to the Court of Appeal. So that decision came out this year from the Court of Appeal that said essentially she she didn't meet the threshold for getting leave to appeal because there wasn't an important, arguable question of law that arose there. Right, Okay. it does seem that this is quite a vexatious litigant that yes. the employer is dealing with in yes. this case. Well, that's the other thing. I mean, you're dealing with someone who perhaps sees reason differently to to others. Um, do employers have a right to be afraid of a, of a finding like this or, or this kind of example? I think what this example shows is that there are very onerous obligations on employers when you deal with that that correlation between mental health, medical issues and behavioural issues. So I think these cases have been quite a wake-up call for many employers in just showing how careful you need to be when you're dealing with these these tricky issues. Mm. Do you think a change of government, I mean they're, they're promising to clamp down on the employment courts and, and the speed and things, but also there seems like there might be a bit of a, a shift away from the pro-employee kind of um, way these cases are settled, do you think? I think in terms of these cases, they they do come down to some ver- the interpretation of some very established principles of law around, you know, duties in terms of health and safety and what a fair and reasonable employer could do in the circumstances. So I don't think that those sort of fundamental principles are going to be subject to any change from the incoming government. So when we look at this kind of case, I I don't think it necessarily will have much of an impact in how the courts decide these in future. Wow. So employers need to get themselves a good employment lawyer by the sounds of it. (laughs) That's right. And once, once you have that red flag that there is some sort of medical or mental health issue, you really do need to be stopping and carefully considering how to proceed from there. Rachel, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> and that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.